Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day Podcast, a look back at some of our highlights from the past five days. And this week, we heard firsthand what it was like to go through IVF. We learned about the extent of sexism in the armed forces and also discussed whether or not women could expect to be taken seriously in the world of motorsport. But first, after the tragic death of Simon Buttermore, a prominent figure in the island's art scene, we spoke to his sister, Viona Halleur, about his incredible legacy. He started off at a very young age, actually, with the Arts in Man and the Art Bus, which was like a travelling gallery. This was before we actually had a gallery at all. And he became very, very involved with art in the island, taking part in all sorts of pop-up um, exhibitions in forests and woods and all the rest of it, just to to be able to like show people that there's art in the Isle of Man. It wasn't just John Nicholson, wasn't just Chibald Knox. It was a lively, thriving, existing scene and always has been. Yeah, and he was always sort of pushing boundaries, wasn't he? Because obviously he was involved in film and music and, and many other arts as well. But he, he what he created was very unique, wasn't it? He went from the sublime to ridiculous, actually. I mean, a friend of mine's got a statue that he made, a wooden carving, which is basically a dancing figure wearing a pair of what he called kinky boots, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, when they did the restoration work on Peel Cathedral, it was Simon they asked to do, I think it was 40 metres of railings with Celtic knots, etc. right the way around. So you go along to Peel Cathedral, that's all Simon's handiwork there. And the same with the statue of Queen Victoria in Victoria Street, which is the one. It's, it's above where, where Max Telecom used to be. But when they took it down for restoration, they actually thought it was stone. It's only when they took it down they realised it was wood. And it was actually only Simon at the time who had the skills, who possessed the skills to be able to do any restoration work on it. Uh, I mean, for years, I'm sure people have seen his gypsy caravan sort of like uh, wandering around the place because on top of his wood carving, his bowls and his spoons and his freezes and all the rest of it, um, he used to make just gypsy caravans and quite spectacular ones as well. He used to sell them to film crews and what have you. One of his other interests, of course, was horses. He had dozens of horses as well. So we're having wonderful fun at the moment trying to track all them down because they're all like this cast all over the island. Because he used to deliver Bushy's beer on the back of a horse and cart. So obviously, yeah. you know, we've already mentioned several different talents that he had and, and a lot of them in the creative arts. And you've actually oh, yeah. got a plan, haven't you, as to, to sort of create a tribute to Simon? Yes, we are putting a plea out to anybody who has any art done by the, the late, great Simon Buttymore. And it could be a painting, an illustration, a wood carving, a bowl, a spoon, a frieze, anything at all that he made and that you'd still in your possession. We'd very much like to borrow it back. I promise you, you will get it back because we want to see if we can create a retrospective of Simon's work. Uh, on at the sale gallery, they've generously allowed us to use the space. They've offered the space and they've said they'll curate it for us, which would be great. So if you do have it, I mean, please let us no. You can contact me on 437-339. My name is Fiona and uh, we'll come and collect uh, art from anywhere at all. If it's big, it actually in situ, then a photograph will do. Yeah. Those who knew Simon know he was a very handsome man, a very strong man, uh, a wonderful physique. And he was, um, despite his wild ways, he was very magnetic and charismatic as well. And, um, and this is coming from his sister, who remembers him being the most irritating person in the world. But, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good thing about families, really, isn't it? When he died, um, he was such fine physical shape, even at the age of 56, that uh, he was able to donate all of his love his heart, his liver, his kidneys, uh, which were flown out to the island immediately that night to be transplanted into people who have been waiting for years in the northeast. And they took out his pancreas and sent it to a specialist centre 
Um, I mean, we don't have all the details as yet, but I understand that the medical geniuses have found a way of taking one pancreas and, and uh, saving hundreds more by just using cells, transplanting cells. So he's been able to save hundreds of people with his death, which is a, a wonderful thing, really, I think. He could drive me to distraction, you know, he really <laughs> could, and, uh, and many other people as well, no doubt, because he was fervent and passionate, and he uh, believed... 100% in what he was doing. And he was he was wonderful, a very generous man with his time, with his life and with everything. He gave everything and in the end he really did. Women Today, brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away. This conversation is even more urgent. Um, you know, as I say, it's nearly 15 years later and we're, we're no further forward. And, you know, this, is, this isn't just about women. You know, there's things that are happening to men, women across the institution of the military. We need to look at the future and the military holds fantastic career pathways for people. Rebecca, some might say, why have you decided to come forward now and not at the time? Um, Because I didn't take the complaint any further after that because I wanted to get out and, and get on with my life. I obviously went, came out of the Royal Air Force, retrained, um, went to drama school and followed my um, passion. I started to write about it and it just kept being something I would revisit. And I think in the last couple of years, I've been supported by Arts Council England to explore this and working alongside um, fantastic organisations like the Royal British Legion Women's Section, who I've been raising money for after my show. And I felt as a artist I wanted to I knew the truth of what what I wanted to say was going to come to the surface and this is the truth of what I want to say along with the other things in the play that I talked about you know friendship feminism and um, celebratory moments of me in in the military and and the things that that determination and the courage that that encouraged me to have and I think now in, we live in a climate where so many things are being uncovered. I recently read the, you know, the updates on the deep cut incident. So I believe it needs to go out wider than that, so that other people can hopefully come forward and share their stories, so that we can make it better, so that the the military can be a place that men and women can consider for a career and and not be in fear of bullying and sexual harassment. I mean, you have had a huge response, haven't you? Because I know, I mean, I first yeah. saw this on the TV news and uh, a very powerful interview. And then I look at your Twitter feed and it's gone absolutely crazy, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really has. And there's been some fantastic supportive comments and people starting to talk about their own experiences. There have been some not so positive comments and I understand that's part of the course. And How do you um, deal with that, Rebecca? I just feel like it makes me more determined to speak out about the truth of it all because I think there's a lot of work to be to be done when you read some of the commentary and the way that people speak about uh, women, about, um, you know, she obviously wasn't strong enough to handle it. And I think, well, in any situation, in any job, any profession, people running around you with no clothes on and thrusting genitalia in your face is really not an acceptable way to behave. And You know, if the military requires that, which it doesn't, and I know it doesn't. Have you had any response from anyone that you're on the island with? Um, I've had response. Nobody on the island has been in touch. Um, I've had responses from people who have been based on the island and they have been disgusted that they're not surprised. Um, I have had responses from people, from colleagues, 
and they have been incredibly supportive and saying, you know, this is a, this is really this is really essential and sort of kind of celebrating the the courage of it because they know that it can't have been easy to have actually spoken out and it still feels very sensitive talking about it. But yeah, there's a lot of support out there and if more people speak about it, that is the whole point of, of this. And, you know, when I've done the play, I've performed the play every day at the Edinburgh Fringe in August. You know, there were people that were coming from the Edinburgh Tattoo who were just like grabbing me off the stage at the end and telling me about their experiences. And, you know, some people were talking about experiences that they'd had of sexual harassment in a different institution. So, it wasn't. It was kind of applicable across the board. But there were people who had served in the military who apologised to me. People who had served in the military and and just wanted to show some gratitude in um, sort of raising this. Now let's talk about mm. your play to finish on because you are doing so yeah. well with this whiskey tango foxtrot and you're touring, I believe. Yes, I start touring in February, um, going around the UK right through until um, June. Um, yeah, so it's a one-woman show. I've written it, and um, I play nine characters. It's based on my experiences, the highs and the lows. The motto of the Royal Air Force is per ardua adastra, which means through adversity to the stars, and that's kind of the tagline for the piece. I just have to ask, though, because I just wonder if any listeners would be thinking, you know what, the timing of the play, I'm sure people have said this already, you know, and oh, coming yeah. out and talking about the military experience. Do you think that yeah. people are being cynical about your timing on this at all? I think people are being cynical. You know, I haven't instigated any communication with any media They've all been in touch with me after people seeing the show. That is theatre and the creative arts. It actually is a platform for people to talk about urgent and important things. And I'm aware that people will be cynical of that. But if it brings out courage and bravery in others, then, then I'm doing exactly what it is I've always wanted to do. Well, it's an incurable disease of the nervous system. Um, to put it simply, if you think of an electric uh, wire which is obviously covered by insulating tape. If, the, if there's a problem with the insulating tape, the wires stick out and the messages don't get through. If you look on an MRI scan, for some with MS, they have very obvious lesions. And depending on where it is, it could affect your mobility, your balance, your eyesight, all sorts of things. So there's obviously then, if that's the case, there's different types and different levels. That's right. I think most people um, who are diagnosed with MS, and it's usually sadly between the ages of 20 and 40 mm. are usually diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS but in relapsing remitting MS goes up and down you get worse you get better get worse you get better secondary you have a relapse and you get better but you don't get quite back to normal primary progressive you have an attack and you get worse. So it just continues to get worse. So it's That's sort of right, like a yeah. downward spiral. That's right. Yeah. Interestingly, primary progressive affects more men than women. But MS, generally, it's more women than men. And now, how did you find out that you had MS? Oh, it went on for years. Yeah. I had all sorts of odd symptoms. Pins and needles, numbness in usually my right side, but sometimes in my left side. And it, this went on for probably about 12 years before wow. I actually thought, actually, I'm really getting a bit sick of this. So I decided, I asked my doctor, I said, look, you know, can we just think about this a bit more seriously now? You know, it's got to be something. And eventually the GPs went, mm, I've run out of ideas. I think you need to see a specialist. 
and I saw a neurologist, had some scans and they said, mm, yeah, it's MS. Is it completely random or is it a genetic thing? Or Well, there's some thought that it could be genetic. There's some thought that it could be a virus or brought on by a virus. And there are environmental things as well. I think it's sort of like a sad mixture of everything. For a long, long time, for most of my life, I have been the only person in my family with MS. Sadly, my cousin was diagnosed a year or two ago. We've had completely different lives. We don't, you know, our only connection is through my dad and his mum. We've talked about it and we think, yeah, well, you know, I had this, you didn't, you've done this, you didn't. That must be quite frustrating to not be able to sort of pinpoint. Frustrating for the people who are looking for for a cure, Yeah, for sure. So how does it affect your day-to-day life, would you say? Um, Primarily it's fatigue, which is a big thing. Mm. Um, And it's not just getting up and thinking, I'm still tired. It's like getting up, doing one thing and then having to lie down. You learn to manage it, I think, is the answer. And I think this is how most people I know with MS. They sort of say, OK, well, I know that if I run around all morning, I'm flat out all afternoon. It Again, it's just it's a learning curve and, you know, you just have to do it. And apparently it's, it's not just physical, is it? It's also sort of a mental effect. So some people talk about like a brain fog or something. Yeah, that's, that's quite an interesting thing because... Obviously, as you know, I, I make my living from writing mm-hmm. and I can be, I sort of start thinking what I'm going to write and typing away and I suddenly think, I have no idea what this next word is going to be. Mm. And I actually literally have to sort of stop typing, turn away from my computer, go and do something else and come back. And, it, and it's usually a very simple wor- word like, you know, I don't know, desk. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly simple and it's really annoying. What would you say then, um, as someone who deals with MS on a day-to-day basis, what would you say is the most frustrating or difficult thing about it? Um, the unpredictability. Yeah. you. I can get up in the morning and think, oh, you know, just do what I normally do, you know, walk the dog and everything. And, and the next morning I think, oh, I'll get up and just think, actually, no, I can't walk that distance. Or, you know, my legs really hurt today. And you never know when it's going to happen. Never. Are people sympathetic or do they just, do they have very little patience with you? I think most people are because it's not something I make a big thing about. The thing that's really annoying is when you're really off balance and you're walking down Strand Street and you're actually hugging the wall. You look like you're drunk. And then I know of somebody who, who was pushing their baby in the pram and she was sort of very wobbly. And she was accused by total strangers being pushing a pram when you're drunk at this time in the morning. That doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Is is there um, an awareness and support over here? There's great support here. Um, I understand there are somewhere in the region of about 100, between 130, maybe 150 people on the island with MS. We have a, uh, a specialist neurology nurse who is amazing. Um, we have two neurologists who come over from the Walton Centre, which is a clinical centre of excellence for um, MS and for all neurological conditions. We also have a great physio department. We have great occupational therapists, all of whom are incredibly approachable. I think we're extremely lucky to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, from the MS Society's point of view, we do we run um, a series of exercise classes, Pilates classes. We have a, a yoga class, all of which are aimed at keeping people as mobile as possible, because mm-hmm. that's the big thing. If your mobility goes, your independence goes, coffee mornings and get togethers, which isn't for everybody. Um, but it means that there is a sort of a, a sort of peer support 
with people who know what you're going through, who know what it's like um, and aren't going to judge you. I thought the programme was very interesting. I mean, my standpoint on it, on it is that it's optimistic caution. It's a very aggressive treatment. The neurologist on the, on the programme last night, towards the end of it, said, you know, it's early days. It's not a cure. These four people have done extraordinarily well. Um, we're going to have to monitor them, keep monitoring them. More trials have got to be done. It's not a miracle, mm-hmm. unlike what was on the Daily Mirror front page today. But sadly, it isn't a cure, at least not at the moment. These people who were on the programme last night, and good luck to them, I really hope they carry on like that. Mm. Nobody knows what they're going to be like in two years' time, five years' time, ten years' time. It's not suitable for anyone with primary progressive or even secondary progressive MS. Who knows what's mm. going to happen? Because I, I don't want to be the sort of person saying they're doom and gloom or they're still looking for a cure. They are still looking for a cure. This might be the first step towards it, but it's a baby step. It's realism, really, isn't it? And I mean, yeah. there was hashtag feed going on Twitter, uh, hashtag MS Panorama, and I was checking that out while I was watching the programme as well. And like you said, people who have MS and are very aware of how it affects you and the treatments that are available were very realistic about it to be fair and it was very interesting following that feed over the years i've just i spent a lot of time rolling my eyes saying oh there goes another one you know um but i do i do think this this looks really positive and really promising but it's still got i mean 100 people in the trial that's hardly anything yeah hardly anything and anecdotally and being online today there's there are people who for whom it didn't work people who got worse Mm. and were people who were actually made quite ill from it. However, there are a lot of people out there for whom it could be their best hope. Do you have any kind of advice or words for anyone who is just in the early stages of finding out they have MS at the moment? Or Just bear with it, I think is the answer. It really isn't a death sentence. Everybody's immediate image is multiple sclerosis. You're going to end up in a wheelchair with somebody else looking after you and life will be hell. Not necessarily. Well, thank you very much, Susie Holland. It's been great to talk to you and all the best. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity. Lots of thoughts on Bernie Eccleston's comments. Uh, Brian sets in to say uh, Danica Patrick was a top driver in American IndyCar racing. Um, And a text from Chris that says, Bernie is probably being realistic. In 1978, I was on the bottom rung of the ladder in motorsport, but there are only 22 seats in F1 and the best in the world are fighting for them. If a driver is very good, make no mistake, the teams will look at them as it's a business. Mm, that's true. And look at Maria Herrera. We were talking there just in the interval about... Um, in the interval? Sounds like we're at the theatre. Did Ooh. anyone bring any ice cream in? It is a performance, Joe. Yes, drug. yes. Um, we were talking about Maria Herrera in um, MotoGP. She's in Moto3. And that is a really tricky um, motorsport competition to get into. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I just can't get my words out today very well. It's not articulating point at all. But yeah, I mean, she's done really, really well too. So we, there, we have got some great women in motorsport. Yeah, and as uh, this has been reflected on the Facebook as well, I've had loads of comments. Uh, thanks to Debs, uh, Debs Gwinnell, former guest. Oh, yes, please. What a ludicrous statement to make. If any driver is good enough, they should be taken seriously. Not a fan of Stone Age Bernie. Uh, Adam says, motorsport is one of the few where there isn't a gender divide and the vast majority of teams and individuals operate with genuine equality. Uh, For all the good he's done for the sport, this is a tragic statement from Eccleston. I reckon if the race has got competitive sector times and good feedback, I don't care if they're Martian. And Ruri says he's well past his sell-by date. And Mr. Davy Morgan, who's one of our own TT riders, has said, uh, sometimes Mr. Eccleston speaks 
before he thinks. He's an old man and perhaps in his day a woman's place and all that. I think it would be good for the sport. Perhaps it's just the shake-up Formula One needs as it's really uninteresting. And Kate Farrance, who I mentioned before, Guy Martin's sister, says, let the performance do the talking. Keep your head down and block out all the negativity and do what you do best. I'm proof being a female mechanic in British superbikes in a man's world was hard and I had to prove myself twice over. But if you want it bad enough, you will forget the sexist comments and crack on. And can I just say, she's also a fire lady too. Hmm. And our very own Eunice Cubbon from Radio TT says, unfortunately, like a lot of men around motorsport, Bernie Eccleston has never taken women in motorsport seriously. There is no evidence that a woman could not drive a Formula One. Yes, physically it's tough, but not beyond a woman's capability. Mentally, it's the same. Around motorsport, more and more women are competing at all different levels and to great success. Bernie Eccleston doesn't see women in Formula One as an asset, yet from a promotional view, women get greater coverage. What does he want? Fire lady. Sorry, I hate that word. Fire lady. Firefighter. Firefighter. She is. It was a funny one, really, because I'm I'm quite stubborn and pig-headed, and the um, the kind of the real start of it was uh, someone told me that I wouldn't be able to handle a 911, so I went out and bought one to prove them wrong. And it kind of snowballed from there. I, I got involved with track days, and um, I've been doing that for about seven or eight years. And then I was a full-time wheelchair rugby player, had lost a bit of passion for the sport, so needed something different. And um, it was just a natural progression, I suppose, from tracking my car for so many years and feeling confident that I was good and, and then confident in the track days to move forward into getting my race license. And um, here I am a season later racing in the Porsche Club Championship. So, uh, yeah, that's how it began, really. Well, Bernie Eccleston has claimed a female driver would not be taken seriously in the sport. And he also says that the sport may never see a female racer again. How do you feel when you hear comments like that? It's same old, same old. Um, Unfortunately, motorsport is a male-dominated industry. It's also a bit of an old boys club. I think that there's there's no background, there's no founding for a statement like that to be true because unlike other sports, Um, motorsport doesn't rely on physical um, strength Um, although physical strength is involved with driving a car it's not like football it's not like running females and males in the same arena will not be females won't be at a disadvantage strength wise because of their body makeup it's it's skill it's a skill-based sport so there's there's no reason why women in motorsport can't be as dominant and as successful as men The problem we have is that because it is a male-dominated sport and not many women are involved in it, females don't see that the sport is accessible to them. But that's changing. There are a lot of girls in karting now. We've got Alice Powell in GP3. The more women are involved in motorsport, the more women are going to be aware that it's possible that it's accessible to get into. So there's no reason why there won't be a female in in Formula One in the future. How can we encourage more women to get into motorsport? Well, initiatives like Susie Wolfe's new project, which is Dare to be Different, that support females within male-dominated arenas are really important. All, All it needs is publicity. Females that are doing this, that are in motorsport, that are in karting from the ground up, need to be made more publicly Um, available for people to see the achievements, see what they're doing 
also support within the the industry as well. I think if you if you go into a male dominated arena, you are of a certain personality and you could probably hold your own there, but I think support is is good just to show that that we're good enough and that we there's no there's no question as to whether we should be involved or not. You mentioned Susie Wolf there, who is married to Toto Wolf, who's the Mercedes director. Um, she retired from racing, didn't she, last year after claiming her dream of yeah. reaching the starting grid was unachievable. There was no reason why Susie shouldn't have been involved in the um, in the Formula One races. You know, she was a test driver, but she was she was tense off massa, and the only way to get quicker in race environments is to race in a race. You, there's no substitute for seat time. Had she been given the opportunity, she would have been good enough. Now, you talk about Dare to be Different, which is a new initiative that she has launched, and you're involved with it because, congratulations, you've just been awarded as an ambassador for it, haven't you? <laughs> Thank you, yes. I'm, I'm really excited about this project. This is what motorsport needs. We need organisations and um, initiatives to encourage women to become more involved with motorsport and to be recognised as talents within the industry. And that's exactly what Dare to be Different does. It supports female talent right from the, um, the ground up and I think it's only going to grow. And like I say, this is what the industry needs. More awareness, more support and more recognition. So let's go and prove Bernie wrong. Exactly. <laughs> minutes to three. We're talking about IVF this afternoon and finding out what it's like to go through the process. And we'll be hearing from uh, Annie Eastham, who's our studio guest, in just a moment. But first, let's find out what the situation regarding IVF is like here on the islands. The amount of money allocated for IVF treatment by the Department of Health and Social Care currently stands at £40,000. To qualify for funding, there are certain criteria people have to meet. So couples must have no children, either together or with a previous partner. Women must have a BMI of between 19 and 30, and the partner must have a BMI of less than 35. Women must be over the age of 23 and under the age of 38 at the start of treatment. Both partners must be non-smokers and there must be more than three years history of infertility. Now, if this criteria is met, the department will only fund one treatment cycle. But if an elective single embryo transfer takes place and there are remaining good quality embryos, the department will pay for freezing and one year's storage along with funding of a thaw and frozen embryo replacement if the first cycle is unsuccessful. The egg collections, embryology work and embryo transfers are carried out at the Leeds Centre for Reproductive Medicine and the planning and monitoring of cycles is undertaken on island by a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist. Last year, the department funded 20 fresh cycles of IVF and two frozen embryo cycles at the cost of £34,533.26. It's also worth noting that the success rate of treatment has gone up considerably. Of these 22 cycles, the clinical pregnancy rate was 13 out of 22. That's 59%. For those couples who don't fulfil the department's funding criteria, they can use the pathway on a private basis, paying for the treatment, drugs, travel and an extra cost to the department to use the facilities at Nobles Hospital for monitoring. 
Alternatively, they can of course choose to go to other IVF units independent of Nobles Hospital and the department. So that's the official story from the Department of Health and Social Care. But what's it actually like from a personal point of view? Well, we are joined by Annie Eastham who went uh, through this. Annie, take me back to when you went to the first doctor's appointment, I presume, and realised that you were having problems and were going to need further treatment. What happened? Um, yeah, so obviously it's it's it was me, but it was my husband. Well, he wasn't my husband at the time. It was my partner. Um, so you're in it together and you know you're in it together. So you, you head off and it's really daunting, actually. It is scary um, because you think something that is so natural and simple it should happen for you and then it doesn't so it it's scary but it's also it's enlightening at the same time because you feel like you're doing something because prior to that you don't you don't know what you're doing and you're just upset and worried about it and all the rest of it but then once you make that step and you you start your process you start getting answers and that actually is surprisingly reassuring I mean it's a very long process but it it does make you feel like you actually can do something about it. So that's and good. did you find out in your case what was causing the problem? No, we um, we always had unexplained infertility, which I know is really common. And um, that is ultimately really, really frustrating as well. Um, but also it still leaves you with a little bit of hope that things are OK and it might just happen anyway. So that's always ticking away at the back of your mind too. So I was 35, and although that's not that old in terms of conceiving, uh, I was starting, you know, fertility clock was starting to tick then, really. It does. And then as 35 goes on, you know, your, your success rate is, is lower after that, really. And with regards to the treatment that it was decided was best for you, because mm-hmm. there are there are different options, yeah. what did you go through? Well, we, um, I mean, I have to say, we received great care and treatment on the island with a consultant here who was brilliant for us. Um, and we chose, to, we did go to Leeds, actually. We chose Leeds as an option for us. Um mainly because the cost as well. I mean, it is very expensive. I turned 38 a month before our treatment started, so we had no treatment courtesy of the government, so we had to pay for all of ours. And, um, yeah, so, you, yeah, you, you just uh, you just have to you have to get going and you just start start from there, really. So. Do you know the thing, Annie, when I've spoken to women who are trying to get pregnant, the thing that they've said is that it becomes absolutely all-consuming. Mm-hmm. It's all you can think about. Yeah. You walk down the street or you see a pregnant woman. Yeah. What's <laughs> that emotional side of it like? Yeah, it's you're deeply engrossed in it, literally from the word go. And we were very lucky. We We were very open about our treatment with our friends and family. And our friends and family were amazing for us. They were so supportive. Um, but yeah, you do suddenly feel like you're the only people in the world that can't have babies. And that is, it is heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking for them as well, because they watch you. And you see, you see people having kids and you just wish for it and you wish for it and you wish for it. And if it was, if it was from goodwill alone, from your friends and family, we would have had 10, 15 babies. <laughs> because everyone wanted it so long for all of us. So you went to Leeds and um, you, you went through IVF. How many cycles mm-hmm. did you go through? We had uh, we had three egg collection cycles and one of them we had a frozen embryo from one of those cycles as well. So yeah, that was that took us yeah it took us over the period of six six and a half years the whole time yeah. And once you've had uh, one course of treatment, how long did yeah. you wait until? Well, yeah, I mean you, you're on the bandwagon at that point. You start going and then. It takes a really long time. You you think, I mean, it, it sort of worked out about one every year and a half at the end of it. 
Um, so you go in and you, you do all the stuff and then you come out of it and, you know, we were unsuccessful. And then there's a whole process of you go back to your consultant and then you talk about it. You look at the results, you look at everything on paper and you talk about what may have gone wrong or, or this, that and the other. And we had we had really good uh, cycles, you know, they're successful in terms of what, you know, embryos and the type of embryos and we, we had. So we always just had hope really at the back of our minds and that was that was good but it's a real it's a real up and down up and down cycle yeah so taking me back it's I'm getting emotional now thinking about it so you do you you go really up and down with it so yeah yeah and were any of the cycles successful no. well yes and no um nothing really and then the last one I had which was May when would that be just trying to think would it be 2015 where are we now 16 last year yes 2015 I'm losing track of days now <laughs> that's what happens when you have a baby <laughs> it is <laughs> it is um yeah I miscarried um very early miscarriage um and that kind of was the end of, of IVF I was 41 by then so yeah and we went back and had a chat with our consultant and she said your chances are less than eight percent and at that point you kind of know well that's it then you know you're not really going to bother with it because it is blooming expensive so you you just don't and I think I felt relief actually at the end of that because it's a painful experience having a, your eggs collected believe it or not it is it's hard emotionally physically um, I was actually quite relieved to stop and we did we stopped and just you know just you, we had other options you know you, you have to start thinking about fostering adoption or thinking about egg um egg donation at that point but we knew that we weren't going to do anything for a bit and that was that really so and then what happened then I got pregnant six weeks later (laughs) (laughs) you do hear that Annie that people must and they must have told you you know stop Mm. worrying about it and it will happen you do yeah you do and people do say to you and it's 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 kind of people to say that and of course in your mind you're always thinking there's there's a little bit of hope somewhere but you can never, you can't stop yourself from wanting it. And you can't stop yourself from, from keeping trying, I think. You never really stop. Um, and yeah. you have now got yeah. a little boy. Yes. What is it like when you've wanted a baby <laughs> for so long to finally have one? Oh, it's absolute joy. It really is. Every day. I mean, I am so, I mean, Mark and I, we, we are just, you know, no day goes by. We don't feel lucky we are to have him in our lives now. So, yeah, it's great. We've talked a little bit about the the emotional journey that mm. you went through, um, and it's interesting. So many people going through IVF; it's mm. not uncommon here mm. in the island, but there isn't actually any specific group where you can talk to people going through similar yeah. things. It's we never. I mean, you know, maybe there is one now. I don't know, but um, when we were going through it, I, I never, I never knew of one really. And you know, would I've gone? I don't know. I mean, we were, we had good support around us, but there's some people maybe would benefit from that, maybe. Difficult to say, mm, Annie, because yeah. every um, experience is, is yeah. obviously very personal yeah. and individual. But if there's anybody listening who's who's starting out on this journey, who's in the middle of it, who's going through what you did, what would you say Ooh. to them? Yeah, you look after yourself and look after your mental health as well. Both of you, you know, you and your partner, because it is, it's testing. I mean, now we have a child that's very testing as well on a relationship but when you're trying and trying that is it's really tough it is tough um because you can feel really isolated actually as well and you feel like you're the only ones going through that and i have to say when we went to leeds strangely enough you go for a um 
induction, if you like. And uh, it's like a, it's an evening. And, and it was weird, actually. I remember going and suddenly you're in a room, 30 or 40 people, you know, they're all couples. And I felt really reassured, actually, by that, because suddenly you were surrounded by people like us, you know, and they were people young, you know, people older, younger. And it's like, oh, crikey, we're not kind of the only ones. And you know you're not, but to suddenly be surrounded by a, a big group of people, I, I, I got strength from that, actually, I think. So, you know, if, you know, that might be the case on the island, I don't know. So. Well, that was Annie speaking yesterday. And during that programme, we found out that the Isle of Man government allocates £40,000 a year for IVF treatment as long as couples meet certain criteria. And this prompted the following text message into the studio. Gary texted in to say, Can I say, in my opinion, that anyone wanting IVF should pay for it out of their own pockets? Taxpayers shouldn't fund it as it's not a God-given right to be able to have children. Uh, interesting story thoughts there well we really did think that was a, an interesting point of view we wanted to see what you all thought about it should the government pay for any IVF treatment at all as Annie was saying it's a difficult process it's not like it's a very simple thing and they're just saying give us the money so I can do it it is a very challenging thing and the very people that go through it are very brave I would say I think something to bear in mind is that although treatments are improving sometimes the success rates aren't great um, so therefore is it a wise way to spend taxpayers money okay so other ways we pay um other ways we use taxpayers money let's have a think and think you know is there anything else that you can think of that perhaps you know we shouldn't be paying for um i mean you look at obesity for instance there's a lot of people that go and get gastric band treatment on the nhs is that okay compared to ivf i don't think so ravina talbot what are your thoughts on this i think it's really um very difficult because the sympathy parts and the empathy part you know really does um go out to people uh, in this position. I myself lost a child uh, and I suffered from miscarriages, but fortunately I was able to conceive. So I agree, I don't think you can really walk that path, uh, understand that path unless you've walked it. But I also agree that we've got limited budgets in an austerity time and somebody has to make the decision. Um, However painful it is, decisions have to be made and it's tough at the moment. I wouldn't want to be in a position to have to make those decisions. We've had uh, some interesting thoughts on Facebook on this, Christy. We have. uh, Jackie says, I agree it should not be out of our tax, but the government's money should pay us. It's so expensive for them to pay for it themselves. It's so sad when people are wanting a baby and can't afford to keep trying. Uh, And Corinne says, considering the hoops these couples have to jump through just to get to IVF, then why not? The government throws millions away on a variety of good causes. So why not this good cause? For instance, moving the horse trams to the side of the prom. (laughs) (laughs) Or having a boob job. You know, that's another thing, isn't it, from health concerns? People have boob reductions and boob increase... Because of the psychological yeah. difficulties and physical as well. Yeah, boob but... job compared to IVF, mm. you know? Uh, Juin says, uh, rough translation of the text we had in yesterday, I don't need IVF, I don't want to pay for someone else to have IVF because I'm selfish, but if I need treatment from the NHS for anything else, I expect to get it from f- for free. Um, some really strong thoughts there. Do let us know what you think on this one. Women Today at MaxRadio.com or you can text 16617 minutes to three. You're listening Women to Women Today. Today. Sponsored by City oh, Wing. For business nice. trips or family breaks, fly with CityWing.com. I love it when that happens. Oh, it's, it's a miracle. Oh, it is. Uh, 
It is Women's Day, just in case you missed that. Uh, still to come, your thoughts on Madam President being referred to as love in Timwald yesterday. But now we are talking about the University of the Third Age, which was formed on the Isle of Man in 2012, thanks to our guest this afternoon, Ravina Talbot. And we heard, uh, Ravina, how you are really passionate about learning. You've got an open university background. You're a lecturer in health and social care. And that's really what prompted you to form this on the island, because it's an international group, as you said, isn't it? Yes, it started in 1972 in France, actually, came to the UK in 1982. Um, the title, U3A, University of the Isle of Man, is a bit of a misnomer because it's nothing to do with university or exams. Um, really what it is, it's a learning network um, which enables people to learn a variety of subjects, whatever they're interested in, at a reasonable cost and try to make it accessible. So what's this third age all about then? Right, well again that's another problem because uh, the third, the, the national office sort of suggests that the first age is child and school, childhood and school, the second age is work and family and the third age really is whatever you think after that because people are retiring earlier, people are living longer and And so really, at the end of the day, you know, we don't really want to define an age and limit people or exclude people. I have to say we haven't turned anybody away yet. Now, you had about 80 people who were interested when you first mooted this Mm. idea back in Mm. 2012. So you got together, you sort of decided what you were going to do. When you get these people together, what are they learning about? Well, we started off with six groups. In the early days, I was really very open to anybody setting up a group just to get us off the ground. I have to say now we've got 26 groups all over the island and there's such a variety. I mean, if I give you an example, um, we've got a craft group in Peel, which does sewing, knitting, patchwork. And there's a variety of uh, skills levels in these groups. Geology, jazz appreciation, Manx Church's archaeology, medieval history. Philosophy group is the group that I'm in. And actually, I I know nothing about philosophy till I joined the group. And we've looked at does democracy work? What is truth? Is it ever right to do a wrong action? So if you didn't know anything about this, who does? Who's teaching you? Well, the whole thing is really, it's not like a college-based sort of setup. Anybody can be a facilitator. So the philosophy group happened to be a retired lawyer who'd always wanted to do philosophy. So she's got sources from national and online. She decides really, we decide the theme. She collects what sort of um, ideas we're going to look at. We look at them before the meeting and we have a discussion afternoon tea. It's very nice. And I believe because we had a little chat before the show and we were talking about the type of things that people are interested in and something you have an amusing story about what you didn't think people would be interested in but suddenly it's a it's a hugely popular yes. class. Yeah I mean when I started this I actually thought I knew what people wanted and I had a lady phone up from the North Island saying well I'll start you a herb group and I put the phone down and I thought well that won't take off <laughs> and actually it's one of the most popular groups they are fantastic not only are they looking at the travel routes but aromatherapy cookery medicinal all sort the history of herbs different culture of herbs all sorts of things a massive subject but they're also now designing uh, the st john's mill herb guard wildlife garden for the mill and they've also helped somebody do a phd philosophy um uh, 
looking at herbs in the Isle of Man as compared to herbs in the Isle of Wight. So, you know, we get into all sorts of things. And, and Latin. Latin. And Latin's Latin another all. one. Yes, where uh, I thought, well, nobody wants to go to Latin. Latin's a small group, but it's gone on and on and on. And they're almost advanced Latin now to the point that we're thinking of starting a beginner's Latin group. So um, there, there are lots of things that happen. Each month we have a network meeting because some people um, are finding that uh, they just don't want to be in a group. They just want an, a nice speaker, a nice meeting where they meet people and socialise. So every month we have a, a meeting. There is one tomorrow and it's called Manx Marine Monsters by the Dolphin Watch people at St John's Mill. Starts at two o'clock. Everybody's welcome to come along and get to know more about us. And you'll also get more information on the small groups. Um, the, we have a website which is www.isleofman.com com backslash u3a all small case i may not be here tomorrow i'm going to go to that talk it sounds ace <laughs> there's loads to do isn't there do you know this is an amazing thing you it started really ravina i mean from what nearly four years ago now did mm. you have any idea that it was going to take off in this way well i didn't really but i did feel there was a gap because learning was becoming very expensive and uh, also there was people having time on their hands now a lot of people are looking after the grandchildren whatever but do you know and this may be a topic for women today there are a lot of people whose grandchildren are off the island or they don't have grandchildren because the kids have decided not to have children and so there's quite a lot of people on their own so one of the groups we've got is called Toto those on their own oh, and basically that. that little group is not sort of an advice thing but it it's looking after people who are on their own who've got nobody on the island so that if anything happens they're in the little Toto group they go out for lunch and they discuss all sorts of things so Ravina who can get involved with this and how do they do it Anybody can get involved. We have a telephone number, which is 801032. It is an answer machine, so if you leave your details, somebody will get back to you. Um, or you can phone me uh, on 842959. And can I just say, Ravina doesn't even get any money for this. She's completely passionate about it, that it is passionate about it, that you don't even get paid, do you? No, nobody gets paid. Um, it's really a volunteer role uh, for the executive and for all the facilitators. And it's just great, really, because the Isle of Man's good at things like this. No government money in it, so we're very independent, which actually gives us a, a good standing because last year when the politicians were banging on about the older be people being a political time bomb... We got together a retired doctor, myself with the Open University background and a professor, put together some research to see if what they were saying was true. And it wasn't. So we presented a presentation and the politicians then changed the language. So there you go. All those out of work actresses, Beth, they can come along to this and learn things and they don't even have to do exams. I'm trying to get um, a cycling U3A group going because I really want to see them in the Lycra. Oh, I bet you do. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. You can join us live every weekday just after two. Also, keep up to date with what's happening on the Women Today Facebook page. Like and follow the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. It's at MR Women Today. So until next time, goodbye. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. 
So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Eric.